please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again for this day, for the opportunity to be together, to sit at your feet and to hear how we might be salt and light in this world. And Father, we pray that as we look at this controversial subject, that you would be glorified in our midst as your people, both individually and corporately, so that, Lord, you would receive all the honor and glory and we would flourish as a community. Take our minds now and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I know you said it as a kid, and I know your kids and your grandkids have said it. One parent makes a decision for one kid, and the other kid says, that's not fair. Right? I mean, after all, Bo got to go to Senators games, and I had to sit home. He didn't even play baseball. But I'm over it. All right? <laughs> but you see, we do that, right? We cry out, not fair. And it's one thing to have that discussion within a family system. It's another thing to discuss that in a national system. Amen? We're in a contentious culture, a polarizing culture today. And when it comes to so many issues of our society, we need to have the wisdom and the grace and the strength to minister with grace and truth as we walk out of here today. And so today, we're going to look at this subject of biblical justice, looking at the Deuteronomy text. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 16. Could have chosen a lot of texts, but I've preached on the Micah passage where we're to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. I've been there, and you've heard that from me before, and we know that. But I thought the Deuteronomy passage was relevant for today, for our culture especially, because we're asking our nation as well to be just, right, as a nation. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see some great truths that help us to know uh, and to tell the counterfeit justices that are out there, because some churches have fallen into it. And we want to make sure that we don't. And we focus on biblical justice as we walk from here today. The first thing we notice in this passage is Moses is writing to the people of Israel as they are going into the promised land. And this is what we are to be like. And it's all the rules regarding God's people. Because the nations around them don't live this way. And so we get to this issue of justice in the new Israel, and the first thing we learn here is that justice is to be pure and not perverted. That's the words of Moses. Pure justice is perver not perverted, it's pure, all right? Moses says that the judges and officers shall judge the people with a righteous judgment in verse 18. We read what that looks like in the first chapter of Deuteronomy, in chapter 1, verse 16, that righteous judgment means presenting the best solution to the problem so that it is in line with all God's nature as holy love. Therefore, it considers both the merits of the case and human compassion. Therefore, our judges are told 
verse 19, you shall not pervert or distort, the NASB has, justice. Bribery is one of those terrible ways we heard read by Marie this morning. Bribery is one of those terrible ways that justice is perverted in a court system. Perverting justice is a serious thing. When those who are the custodians of the law act in ways that people think are unjust, the people lose trust of the system, do they not? It hits at the very heart of what makes a society stable and a society healthy. The law protects the nation by rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil, Paul says in Romans 13. Therefore, those who enforce the laws are a key ingredient to the health of a nation. That's why contempt of court is such a serious charge. The honor and esteem in which the court is held must be protected and why those who dishonor the court must be severely punished. But yet, this is a collective thing as the nation of Israel. It's also a collective thing as individual followers of God, too. We are to be just people and make sure that we, too, don't pervert justice and that we call churches, nations, to not pervert, twist, distort justice either. The dictionary defines justice as the maintenance and administration of what is just. And what we see in our culture today is a perversion of justice under the guise of what some people do call social justice. We all believe in social justice. We all believe that's important to be part of. We take part in such things. But what some people define as social justice is not. So quite frankly, I've even stopped using that phrase. I call it biblical justice going forward. Because what we see is the biblical justice definition, as we saw in the Merriam-Webster definition, it's meeting the needs of those around us as they come available to us, striving to make opportunity for everyone that we possibly can. But social justice is a different definition in many circles today. And it all stems from the influence of the critical theory school, which stemmed from Frankfurt, Germany in the early 20th century. After the Marxist revolution failed to topple uh, capitalism in the early 20th century, many Marxists went back to the drawing board, modifying and adapting Karl Marx's idea. If you don't know who Karl Mar Marx is, he's a German philosopher, an atheist, who developed a theory of economics where the state owns all the businesses, all the production, all the exchanges, and everyone gets paid the same. He described religion as the opiate of the people. And so his, his uh, followers in Frankfurt, Germany, Germany, developed a system of social research, and they applied Marxism to interdisciplinary social theory. And so critical theory comes from this. That word critical is important for us to understand. And they strive for equity, not equality. Equity is equal outcomes. Quality is equal opportunities. As Christians, we have an impulse to make sure it's fair. We want to see fairness. 
We also know that we're probably never going to achieve it for every segment of our society until our Lord Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for it. We do, and it's important that we do do so. And there are segments of our society where it's not fair. It is unjust, and we need to make sure every American has an opportunity to learn, to grow, and so on and so forth. Nobody would debate that, but this new social justice movement is, when they talk about equity, they're talking about equal outcomes. And the Bible never describes that as justice, my friends. Jesus talked about the parable of talents, right? You get ten, you get five, you get one. Use it. <laughs> All right? All of us are given different gifts, and, and some of us were born with a silver spoon in our mouth, and some were born with a plastic spoon. Maybe a spork, all right? <laughs> right? Okay? And some of us had greater opportunities than others. But the reality is we should take advantage of our opportunities. One thing I am so grateful for my parents growing up is looked me in the eyes and said, you have every opportunity to succeed, young man. Take advantage of it. Imagine you have three people working a job. One's doing a great job, one's doing an okay job, and the other person's doing an awful job, and they all got paid the same. That's what the new definition of social justice is they're talking about. When you hear that word equity, that's what they're talking about. And churches are falling into this. No, my friends, we are for biblical justice, and we strive for it, and we don't pervert it, distort it, change it to meet a definition that is politically popular. Secondly, biblical justice is impartial. Notice in verse 19, he doesn't stop there. Moses says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And then he starts to talk about the bribes that are going on in the court system that ought never to be. And he, again, within the, the court system of the ancient Jewish world, when judges act partially by favoring the rich, the powerful, their friends, those, with, those without influence and power, end up resenting the law because it reminds them of their weakness. Both these qualities are required of judges in today's society, too. Earthly judges represent God in judging humans. Paul says this in Romans 13. Paul said that even a non-Christian judge is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, 4. The nature of God that lies behind these laws should resonate with everyone who are committed to justice as humans who are all made in God's image, worthy of value. Therefore, what the Bible says about the character of judges and officers should be applicable to all judges and officers, even if they don't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. But it's also with God's people. <laughs> We are to show no partiality. We are to look at our neighbors where we live, where we work, and where we play, and out in the community, no matter what race, no matter what religion, as created in the image of God. And the point is that we continue to take this no matter where we're found. Not so with the new social justice movement. They, they, their, their striving in the Frankfurt School was to identify people and institutions that could make changes 
and provide practical goals for social transformation. The social science is critical is that word is identified in exposing problems in order to facilitate revolutionary political change. In other words, it implies revolution. And in a post-truth culture, we've hit the perfect storm. Post-truth, remember? This is my truth, you must applaud. That's, that's post-truth. You, you must applaud. Well, it's the same thing with critical theory. It's not interested in reform. It's interested in revolution. Hence, you don't, um, you don't reform bad police practice. You defund the police. And we see this in all areas, right? You abolish them. And so critical theory denies objective truth, and therefore, as it applies to issues of race, issues in government and society, it's seeking a utopia which is unattainable. Heaven will not be heaven until we're in the presence of the Lord Jesus, my friends, and I pray he comes soon. But what they believe is not biblical and ought not to be embraced by God's people. We should cooperate with government. Government should cooperate with the church, but we show no partiality. Whether it be race, religion, socioeconomic status, everyone is welcome here. And studies are showing, brothers and sisters, that our culture is changing demographically. And we're going to look differently in 20 years than we look today. Praise God. I don't have to go to Uganda. Uganda's coming to me. They, they are. The world is coming here. We need to be prepared. We don't have to go to the mission field. And so we will make friends, be friends, welcome them in and meet the needs that we possibly can and show no partiality. Fun story is my daughter Rebecca, um, our daughter Rebecca, many of you know, took a position a few months ago as the director for the homeless shelter at All Angels Church in New York City. Um, she's with child, as you know. We're looking forward to meeting baby girl in December. And she's got a bunch of guys my age who've gone through this program who protect her. It's quite wonderful to see. They look a little rough around the edges, but you don't want to mess with these guys. That's why I like them. Because <laughs> they protect my daughter. All Angels Episcopal Church started this mission 30 years ago when my friend Martin Minns was the rector. You know why it got started? It got started because, in his words, this church filled with Wall Street bankers and lawyers met on Sunday and went home and ignored the homeless population, which was right on the doorstep, Sunday through Saturday. And so because they had an endowment, Martin started a Sunday night service. They put a shower in there. So certain times during the week, these homeless people could come and, and get a shower. That these homeless people, some who were mentally ill, could get services that they partnered with the city of New York and with Hope for New York and other agencies to help these people. And so after a period of years, that homeless congregation was bigger than the Sunday morning congregation. And it had soul, because they came and sang 
at Martin's installation at Truro Church five years later. <laughs> and it just was awesome. The, these, these homeless people who were shown no partiality because they're made in the image of God. And my daughter's running it now. Isn't that fun? She said, we can't figure them out. But they run morning prayer. They pray with them. They give them resources and what have you and reach out. So how are we to respond here? What do we do where we live, work, and play? Well, I think it's important for us as we go forward in today's culture that we remind ourselves that we participate in the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of this world. We must embrace, Jesus spoke about the kingdom more than anything, quite frankly. And in the West, in Protestantism, in my Reformation heritage, and the Reformation heritage that we are, yes, we love that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And we tend to just sit in that bubble, don't we? We go, yay, I'm saved. You know, we sing songs like, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. You know? As if the presence of, of my present life really doesn't affect my walk with the Lord all that much because I'm going to heaven. That's what really matters. That's not true, right? When a person recognizes the depth of their need for God, how great is their sin, and the depths of God's love for them through Jesus Christ, they participate in God's kingdom, joining the Lord at the work around them. This is beautifully expressed in Isaiah 52 in the poem where the city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon. Babylon, A bunch of Jews have been taken away. There's a few remaining in the city. And what's going through their minds in Isaiah 52? How could this happen? We're God's people. Has God abandoned us? After all, Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to the world. And Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was really all their fault. It was all their own doing. They had turned away from God. They had become corrupt. So their city and their temple were destroyed, and everything seemed lost. But the poem goes on where there's a watchman on the walls. And off in the distance, he sees a messenger coming, and he's running with this message. And a message was was put in a scroll and was sealed with wax. And he's waving this message as he's running. And he's yelling, good news, good news. That's the image that Isaiah wants us to get as he's shouting this good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet on the mountains, are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? You don't want to look at my feet. They're not that beautiful, right? What's so beautiful about them? Well, it's the message that they bring, that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to the city and take up his throne and bring peace. So the watchmen sing for joy because of this good news that God still reigns amidst the destruction. 
And in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, good news, in the Greek word euangelion. It says the gospel, the good news. When Christians say, do you believe the gospel, do you believe the good news? It's not just any news. It's the phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. In the New Testament, the Gospels tell us this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus saw himself as that messenger bringing the news that God reigns. But the way he described God's reign really surprised everybody. Why? Because if you think about it, a successful kingdom must be strong and invade impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. Jesus comes along and says the greatest in the kingdom of God is the weakest, the one who loves and serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies, forgiving them, seeking peace. It's an upside-down kingdom. And so Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. It's, that's why it's an interesting story where the centurion comes to Jesus. He's got a sick servant in, in, in the book of Matthew, and he comes begging Jesus to heal his servant, and he even calls Jesus Lord. That means king, by the way. Actually, what he's doing is illegal in Roman, as a Roman centurion. But he's recognizing Jesus as his authority. And Jesus praises the centurion for acknowledging what no one else yet had. That not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was king. And he is king. So the world gets out that this Jewish man is from Galilee is talking and acting like he's king. He appoints 12 disciples, which is an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And so this threatened Israel's leaders. So they finally decided to have him killed. And the surprising thing is that Jesus let them, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. But for Jesus, it had to happen. Jesus saw the sin of humanity and the devastation of the people of Israel and just, as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity had rebelled against God, resulting in tragedy and devastation over the entire world. So how is God going to bring his reign through such a world like this? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in all of the Gospels, Jesus' death upon the cross is viewed as, it is, as an enthronement. He receives a crown. He receives a robe. His hands are nailed to the cross, and his feet are nailed to the cross. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And the good news is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king. 
and that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself, and that he's conquered it with his life and his love, and therefore he sends his followers out to be a blessing, to keep their antenna up for the needs that are around them, both individually and corporately as a church community. As we invite all, as we announce them, the good news of the upside-down kingdom. They make tanks, we make bread. They make guns, we make cookies. All right? They go out destroying, we build hospitals. We are elements of his grace and mercy to our culture, my friends. Yes, we cooperate with government. It's wonderful to see. But at the same time, my friends, it's a my life for yours mentality reflecting our love of the love of the Lord who did that for us. And so our gospel reading today basically just reminded us that we too take up our cross. Is there some part of our walk with Christ and our mercy ministry that God has called us to that we're holding back on? That happened to the rich young ruler, right? Rich young ruler said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knew what this guy's problem was. Go sell everything. Follow me. He talked about doing the poor and doing all that. And that guy did all that. No, but there was one thing he lacked. He had a love for his stuff. Now, when you really think about it, he didn't have air conditioning. He didn't, he, he didn't have an automobile. He didn't have a chainsaw. We're more wealthy than he was. Our... Our season tickets holding us back, our homes, our possessions, our families, whatever it might be. No, let's let us acknowledge the reality that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we're called to do good mercy ministry wherever we're found. Helping the single mom with her clogged gutters in our neighborhood. The world dominates by violence. We bless by blessing, taking meals, listening to people. Just yesterday, there was an acquaintance who came into the library, and Kim just asked how she's holding up, and the person just unloaded. We do that. We listen to people. We ask good questions, and we, we help them. And after the end of the conversation, he goes, thank you. I needed to talk. Some people just need to talk. Whatever the needs are, he will show us. And corporately, we do do this, my friends. We do cooperate with Bay Food. We do cooperate with CRS. One of the great blessings I have of being the point man at Christ Church is delivering a check to CRS. I walk in there, and I go, Gene, you know? And I go, hey, we love what you guys do. You know, we support you, we love you, we're praying for you. Here's your request for school supplies. Because you wouldn't know it in these suburbs, but there are kids who are short on school supplies, and they go to CRS to get them. Praise God, you're part of that. We're doing it. But let's not get drawn into the cultural noise. The cultural noise and all the debates that are on all the news stations. No, we're just going to be his disciples in this community, a blessing 
bringing heaven on earth so that people will know the good news is real. Jesus reigns. In closing, author Norm Cousins said, history is willing to overlook almost everything, errors, paradoxes, personal weaknesses, or faults, if only one will give enough of himself to others. My life for yours. All under the banner of gratitude of all what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this this message which reminds us to, to use your definition and not our own of what true justice is and to, to be impartial. We confess partiality in times of our lives and we pray that no matter uh, a person's race, religion, socioeconomic background, that we would love people because they're people in many ways just like us wanting to create a path for their families. And we just pray, Lord, that we would be involved with biblical justice in an ever-increasing manner. And that would be our, our impulse, Lord, to be involved with it so that you would receive honor and glory and not us, Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.